Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I want you guys to repeat something after me. I think most of you will know the famous line from The Wizard of Oz. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Remember when they're walking through the forest? So the cowardly and the cowardly lion comes up. So um, has anybody ever been to the Big Cat Reserve out in Keensburg? That thing is pretty interesting. So um, back in 2007, there was a tiger named Tatiana. A 350-pound Siberian tiger escaped from her open-air enclosure at the San Francisco Zoo. And she attacked three visitors that day. One person was mauled to death. Two others were seriously injured. And this was the, wasn't the first time that this lion attacked another person. A year earlier, she attacked a zookeeper on the arm during a public feeding. So, I don't know about any of you, but I would not want to go down a dark alley and meet a a lion. Um, big cats fascinate me. I love the Denver Zoo. When you first walk into the Denver Zoo, right there they have the um, lion exhibit. And you can kind of see them out there on the savanna. But then you can get up real close and they have that plexiglass and their heads are like right there, their paws. And like if you get up close, you can hear them like purring. And it, it's, it's very, it's strange. Um, but none of us here would want to be sealed in a lion's den with a 350-pound lion. One lion, or multiple lions, and yet that's what happened to Daniel. So today we come to one of the most famous narratives in all of the Old Testament, Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, this may be the only thing you ever remember from the book of Daniel as a kid growing up is Daniel and the lion's den. And so um, it's, it's kind of become so much of maybe a Sunday school cliche that little kids learn that we maybe haven't dealt with actually what's going on here. So what I want us to do is I want us to see the significance of what's happening here. This is Daniel at the end of his life, okay? So um, Daniel's chapter 1 through 6 are kind of chronological, and then next week when we go into chapter 7, it's more in times-ish apocalyptic. So what I want us to see tonight is I want us to see, and I brought my computer, I want us to see three things about this account tonight in the narrative of Daniel and Lions. So first of all, what I want us to see is Daniel as a man of utmost integrity. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Daniel chapter 6, and let's see Daniel as a man of utmost integrity. So we're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now, let's just backtrack. What happened last week? The king saw the handwriting on the wall, and that night his life was taken from him, and the Medes and the Persians came in and, and basically invaded Babylon. So there's a new king now. The new king is Darius. Okay, so Darius is the new king. So, <clears throat> here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Okay. Daniel is now in his 80s. There's some of you men on the back row there that are in your 80s. He is a senior citizen who has outlived two kings, King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar. And now he is being promoted under the third king, Darius. And he's made almost like a prime minister of sorts, a, a regional governor. Uh, the ESV here says president, I think. Um, what does it say? Oh, a high official. Yeah, a high official. Um, say traps for the lower officials like mayors or regional leaders. Um, so it was kind of like a, a prime minister, um, a governor. So he became distinguished above everyone else. Why? As we saw last week, what do we see here? What does it say there in verse 3? Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was with him. An excellent spirit. He was a man of integrity, a man of excellence a man of faithfulness. Now think about how Daniel could have abused his power all these years. Now he's in his 80s. He's been in government since he was a 15-year-old kid. So do the math. What's that, about 65 years of being in high government? Think about the wealth and the power he would have had at his fingertips his entire life since he was a teenager. And yet... The Bible here says he never succumbed to temptation. He was a man of integrity. He never got bought off. He never sold out. He didn't give in to political corruption. Now, this is amazing when you think about politi political leaders today and the corruption we see in politics. It doesn't matter what party it is. Politics is corrupting, and Daniel's been in it for over 60 years. And it's amazing because... He is a man of distinguished character and utmost integrity. He lived his entire life as a servant. Now remember, where is Daniel's true home? He, he's, he's still in Israel. His true home is Israel. So he's still living as a stranger in a strange land. He's not Babylonian. He's outlived all these kings. And so he knows that ultimately his home is in heaven. So he's at the end of his life. And... If there was ever a chance to coast, retire, or take it easy, it would have been now. What could have Daniel's attitude been? I mean, this, this has been hard for 65 years to, be, to keep my nose clean. I'm in my 80s. I'm going to die here pr probably pretty soon. Uh, what does it matter if I kind of 
compromise now. I'll kind of coast now. I'll take it easy now. But he doesn't do that. All these years of faithfulness have prepared him for this final trial. This is the final test of Daniel's life. And it comes to him as a senior citizen. Now, here's something interesting. <clears throat> we sometimes think that some of the greatest temptations come when we're baby Christians. Or teenagers only are the only ones that have major temptations. Or young adults. But often, we can be lulled into sleep and not realize that in the graying of life, toward the end, the temptation to compromise could even be more severe. I've paid my dues. I've, 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 lived a man, I've lived a life of integrity of all these years. God owes it to me in these final years to kind of have some fun or to kind of compromise. But Daniel is an aged statesman. And so he is an 80-year-old man in his 80s. He's distinguished. He's a man of integrity. And these other leaders are jealous of him. Why? Go ahead, Brent. We have to be thinking that Internet. Oh, there we go. Sorry for the loss of connection there. Yeah, I mean, everything. He's, he's a man of integrity. But here's the problem. These other officials are jealous, but they can't find any dirt on him. There's no, they can't find any dirt on him. There's no skeletons in the closet. And so these guys are trying to find a way to accuse Daniel try to find a way to trap Daniel, to ruin his character, to slander him, but they can't. So they come up with a maniacal plan. Do you notice what they say there? Look at verse 5. Well, look at the end of verse 4. Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Now, this doesn't mean Daniel was perfect and never sinned. It just meant in his public life, he was a man of integrity that had no skeletons in his closet, had nothing they could bring against him. He was above reproach. He was a man that they couldn't charge with bribery or any type of, of, of any type of sin. And so what they do in verse 5 is, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So here's what they said. The only way we're going to trip up Daniel is if we do something related to his religion because we know he's a man of principles. So we're going to have to figure out something here that's going to put Daniel in the crosshairs of the king and we know that the one thing that Daniel's known for is his relationship to his God. So we've we got to figure something out here. So in verse 6, what do they do? The ESV says these high officials and satraps came by agreement. Um, it was literally a throng. The way the original language says, they, they all came in a frenzy. They thronged to the king. It was like a mob mentality. Basically, what they're doing is they ganged up on Daniel, and they rushed into the king, foaming at the mouth, and they want to damage Daniel's reputation at all costs. And so, um, they basically flatter the king. Notice what they say there. Oh, King Darius, live forever. And then notice what they say in verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance. All of us have come together and we've come up with this idea. All of us. All except who? Daniel wasn't part of this. I've always known this as a pastor. This is just a little hint. Okay. If somebody comes to me with a complaint and they say to me, everybody has this issue. I usually say, well, who's the everybody? Well, you know everybody. 
Okay, is that you and your wife? Who's the, who's the everybody? List, list who, and it's like, well, you know, everybody. So when people want to kind of make a statement, they exaggerate by saying everybody's on board. And that's kind of what they're doing. They, they've manipulated the situation to make it look like everyone's in favor of this. We've all gotten together, King. Everyone's in favor of this ordinance. You need to make this rule. And everyone's in favor of it. And they're assuming that Daniel has been notified about this, but he hasn't. And so what's the edict? We want you to make this edict. We want you to establish this ordinance, force this injunction. And basically what it is, is that for 30 days a month, nobody can pray to any God or man except pray to you, king. Now, just on its merit, how's that going to sound to Daniel once he finds out? You can't pray to any God, your God, for 30 days, it's only you. Now, this is a 30-day edict. And why do I bring that up? This wasn't like the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar where you had to bow down to it or be thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel was not called to bow down to an idol. He was just told that he couldn't pray to God for 30 days. Well, once a month. So what could have Daniel done in those 30 days? He could have laid low for 30 days. And then after the 30 days are over, he could have returned to praying. He could have compromised and passed the time and gone along with this new law. And after all, he's in his 80s, maybe older. What difference does 30 days make? I've paid my dues. I've put in my time. It's just 30 days. No big deal. I'm not being asked to bow down to a statue. I'm just being told I can't pray for 30 days to God. What's the big deal? Okay. Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish pastor, some of you that are in Mickey's growth group, I think, are starting a sermon on the mount with Sinclair Ferguson, so you get to listen to his Scottish accent. I, I'm not going to do his Scottish accent, but this is what he said. He said, we may well ask ourselves in this context if it would make any substantial difference in our lives or the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days. He says, perhaps in many instances, the answer would be both embarrassing and startling, for prayer has become a neglected discipline and a forgotten art in many Christian churches. His point is, if prayer was banned for 30 days, would it make that much difference in your church? Would people care? So, Daniel is a godly man. The edict is for 30 days. And yet, what do we know about what the Bible says about being godly? With godliness comes persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. So, if you stand up for Christ, be prepared to face hostility. It's not a matter of if you're going to be persecuted, it's when. Now, there's degrees of persecution, right? Here in America, we're not going to be thrown in prison, at least yet. We're not going to be burned at the stake. But you could lose a position. You could lose popularity. You could maybe lose a job. Um, you could lose a promotion. You could lose friends. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 18-20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... 
the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Whoops, I better do the blanks here. Remember the world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says they hate me. And because they hate me, they're going to hate you. So if you live for me, Jesus says, they're going to hate you because you represent me. Now, when you think about a den of lions, real lions that Daniel's thrown into, what does Peter say about the devil? 1 Peter 5.8. What does he say? 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, does what? Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil's personified as a lion looking to devour. So here's the thing. While Daniel would face literal lions with real fangs, we as, in, we as believers, we face an enemy that's ruthless and wanting to destroy us. And how will Satan do this? He'll do this through temptation, persecution, and any other ploy he can think of to get us to compromise coast, deny Christ, or back down in our integrity. So here's the question. What's Daniel going to do for these 30 days? Remember, it's, the, the scriptures made a very strong point to say Daniel's a man of integrity. He's a man of excellent spirit. He's a man of character. They can't bring anything against him. So the setup here is that Daniel is immovable in his integrity. So we have to ask the question. You don't even have to read further. What, without even reading further, further, what do you think Daniel's going to do? I don't care what the king's edict is. I serve a higher power. I serve a higher. I serve Christ. I serve the living God. So let's see what happens next. So he's a man of utmost integrity. The second thing that we see about Daniel tonight is that he is a man of intense prayer intense prayer so let's read remember what's the edict 30 days you can't pray to anybody for 30 days the only person you can pray to is the king so what do you think's happening like all these people are probably what thronging into the palace and they're like praying before the king oh king live forever i'm praying for like these people are like bowing before the king so i'm sure all these people for fear of being thrown to the lion's den are coming and doing what paying fealty to the king let's see what daniel does and it's actually pretty radical it's pretty courageous okay here we go pretty amazing so verse 10 when daniel knew that the document had been signed he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward jerusalem he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his god as he had done previously then these men came by agreement and found daniel making petition and plea before his god then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction O king did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. 
Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Okay. It's interesting what Daniel does the moment he finds out the document's been signed. What does he do? I'm going to go petition for my rights, king. I'm going to go ask for a reprieve, a loophole. Now, what does he do? I'm going to go up to my house and open the window and pray three times a day. So he's not secret about this at all. As a matter of fact, he goes to the window like clockwork and begins to pray. So I want us to look at Daniel's praying, and I want us to see three specific things about his prayer that will help us in our prayer lives. You have to look at what it says there at the end of verse 10. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Pretty much his whole life, he'd gone up there and prayed. This was nothing new. This was Daniel's habit. Okay, so let's see three specific things about Daniel's prayer life. Here's the first. First of all, he's disciplined and focused. This crisis didn't drive him to his knees in panic. Instead, it was part of his regular prayer routine. Didn't phase him. No matter what the king edicts is, I'm going to still do what I do every day. I'm going to go up and pray three times a day. I'm going to do what I've always been doing. Now, I want you to see a contrast in this passage of Scripture. The officials are thronging to the king. They're coming to the king in a frenzy. They're panicked. King, do you know what he's doing? King, do you know what he's like? They're rushing in like a mob mentality. They're all in a frenzy. What does Daniel do? He's calm, cool, and collected. He's not phased. I'm just going to go up. I'm going to pray three times a day like I've always been doing. Now, he prays towards Jerusalem on his knees. Now, this is not some ritual like the Muslims do when they pray five times a day facing Mecca. This is not like legalistic where Daniel had to face Jerusalem. Um, nowhere are we told in Scripture that, that we're to do this as New Testament believers. What we, what we understand Daniel doing is it, it's probably just got him in a focused attention that that's his homeland. But here's the point. He had a scheduled prayer time three times a day. Now, prayer can be spontaneous. And we must pray without ceasing, like when you're in the car or when you're, you know, there's spontaneous prayer times. But we also need a scheduled prayer time. Sometimes we call this different things. We call it quiet time, you call it daily devotion, you call it private worship. Whatever you want to call it, Daniel had set aside times, three times a day, that he was on his knees in concentrated prayer. Now, we don't know the content of what Daniel is praying. It doesn't tell us what he's praying. We'll find this out in chapter 9 where we have the recorded prayer of Daniel. But we could maybe guess. This is just a guess. Psalm 55, 16 through 18. But I call to God and the Lord will save me evening and morning and at noon. I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. That, that psalm applies to his situation. These guys are coming against me, and I'm praying three times a day for the Lord to deliver me. So maybe that's what he's praying. Lord, del deliver me from these guys that are trying to malign me, protect me. We don't know. And again, there's nothing magical about facing Jerusalem. But I think 
It helped Daniel stay focused in his praying. This reminded him that God had promised to fulfill his covenant and bring the people back to the land. What was there? The temple was there. He longed for that day to be with God's people and worship again in that sacred place. Now, sometimes we may need tools to help us stay focused when we pray. How many times has this happened to you? Especially you lay down on the bed at night and you start saying, Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Lord, please... Next thing you know, you're asleep, okay? I mean, that happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? Or early in the morning, you get up and you're like, dear Lord, and then, you're, then all of a sudden you start thinking about all the things you got to do during the day, okay? So we may need helps, tools to help us in our prayer. Now, I'm not going to be legalistic about this, but sometimes people use a prayer journal, like a journal where you can write things out. Other times people use an index card, or maybe they use an app on their phone. I I kind of want to get you away from your phone, and the reason I want to get you away from your phone is because every time you have your phone, what's the temptation? A text is going to pop up, a, a notification. So I, I'm not going to be legalistic about this, but it's, it's always better to have this physical thing in front of you. Um, I'm not saying don't use your phone, but maybe you need to have like Table Talk magazine there that we give out free every month from Ligonier Ministries, or, or maybe you have Daily Bread or something there that's theologically solid that can help you stay focused on praying, or whatever it is you need. Um, because staying focused in prayer is sometimes a little bit difficult, especially if it's a set-aside time to do that, even if you like, write your prayers out in a journal. So, so that's number one. It's focused. It's intense. It's scheduled. It's three times a day. Daniel had a plan. It was part of his everyday routine he'd been doing for many years. Okay? And the second thing that's very interesting about this is that Daniel's giving thanks. Do you see that? You go back to verse 10. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now, that's interesting. What would we as cushy Americans be praying? God, get me out of here. Win that Powerball. What? Win that Powerball. Win that Powerball. God, make it comfortable. God, I, I have rights here. The king can't do this. The last thing you think Daniel would want to be doing is being thankful in this. He would, like most of us Americans, we'd be mad. Like, I, the king has no right to do this. I have my rights. I'm not, I, have no, I have no reason to be thankful. This is, this is unfair. So this is a testimony to Daniel's maturity as an 80-year-old man. He could have spent his time complaining against God. He could have spent his time wanting God to make him comfortable and not suffer. But what's he doing? He's giving thanks. He's spending his time in thanksgiving. And when you spend time in thanksgiving, it takes the attention off yourself and puts it on the blessings that God has given you. There's an old hymn I used to sing growing up, especially around Thanksgiving time. You guys remember that old hymn? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. <laughs> there's, like a there's like a verse to it. That's the, that's the chorus. But um, I wonder how, how often do you count your blessings? And you name them one by one. 
Or do you complain and petition God about all your complaints one by one? I mean, what's our attitude? So he is thanking God, and he is praising God. Now, third thing we see here, and we don't know exactly what Daniel says, but the third thing we see here, it's verse 11. These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Daniel pleads before God to move. He, he's petitioning, he's pleading. Now, we don't know exactly what he's saying, but these men are hearing him asking God for stuff. So he's thanking God, but he's also asking God for stuff. Now, you can go to look at chapter 9 here in a few weeks and get insight into what Daniel may have been asking, but it was probably some type of prayer for God to intervene, for God to move. So, again, the text here doesn't tell us. We don't have the actual content of the petitions and pleas before God, but we can make a safe assumption. We can make a safe assumption that his prayers were not self-centered, but God-centered based upon his character and him giving thanks. And he's bowing down. He's, he's kneeling. They're, they're based on humility. He's bowing in humility before God. He's probably confessing sin. He's pleading for God to act. Um, he's, he's praying. We don't know what he's praying. So the three things about Daniel, it's a scheduled set time of prayer, part of his routine. He's giving thanks instead of complaining, and he's also asking God to move. So there's nothing wrong with asking God to move to plead a petition. Now, here's something interesting. This is about the sovereignty of God. You ask these questions. Maybe you don't ask these questions. Sometimes I ask these questions. Here's a question I'd ask. Why doesn't God just put a force field around Daniel so no one can see him praying? He goes up to his window. I mean, couldn't God just like... Daniel opens his windows, but God makes it so nobody can look in and see him. It looks like it's like blank up there. Or God could just miraculously close the eyes of his conspirators from seeing and pray. Why does God, quote unquote, allow Daniel to get caught? Yeah. So here's the thing that we need to understand. And this is what we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace. It's the same concept. God many times may not deliver us from trials, but will deliver us through trials. God may not get you out of a trial, but he promises to be there with you through the trial. Okay, so a very important passage of scripture about this is Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's not if you go through the waters, or if you go through the fire, it's when. God says, I'm not going to take you out of the fire, I'm not going to take you out of the waters, but I'm going to be there with you right through it. So, God sovereignly ordains Daniel to get caught. Doesn't protect him, quote unquote. Doesn't put a force field around him so nobody can see him. Doesn't close the eyes of the conspirators. Daniel's up there, center, public, in front of the window. And I'm sure he probably prayed out loud. The Jewish men back in those days, they would oftentimes pray out loud. So it's not like Daniel's like hiding in a corner, silently praying. He's probably in a corner, 
or he's probably in front of the window, on his knees, with his hands up like this, praying loudly to God. I mean, you've probably seen Jewish men today even, like, praying. That they're praying. And so it's, he's not making it a secret. So God is going to be with Daniel through this. When Paul wanted the thorn in his flesh to be removed, and he asked God three times, we don't know what the thorn is. He asked God three times to remove it. And in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Jesus said to me, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God is saying to Daniel, you're going to get caught, but my grace is sufficient for you. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. So he's caught in the act of praying. So look at verse 11. These men came by agreement. And again, every time, does your translation say they came by agreement or does it say they thronged? Came by agreement. Again, it's that frenzied throng. Like they came in a frenzy. They, they thronged. They're all like in cahoots conspiring against Daniel. And they go straight to the king they rush into the king, and basically, verse 12, they remind the king, king, didn't you sign an injunction? Didn't you make this rule? And also, is not this rule irrevocable? Like, you've made this rule, and you can't renege on it. If you renege on this king, you're going to lose power. You can't make a rule king for 30 days and then just, like, back off on it. That's going to show you're a weak king. And so, you've made this rule, right, that can't be revoked. He's like, yes, I have. And they said, well, Daniel, Daniel... Daniel's pay, praying three times a day. Now, I want you to see how they defame his character in verse 13. What do they say? Who is he? He's the third in the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. And he's been a statesman for 80, like he's eight. What do they call him? Verse 13. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah. He's one of those exiles. Well, how long has it been? I mean, that was back when he was like 15, 16 years old. It's been 60 years. Basically, what they're saying is he's not one of us. He's not a president. He's, he's an outsider. He's against you, O king. He is one of those outsiders from Judah who has that foreign god called Yahweh, and he pays no attention to you. Now, do you see how the king is in a catch-22? What does the king not want to do? The king, likes, the king likes Daniel. Daniel's probably one of his best employees. He's a man of integrity. He can trust Daniel. He's never had any problem to... I mean, Daniel's survived two kings, and now he's serving this king. And so Darius doesn't really want to punish Daniel, but if he doesn't fulfill his edict, what does that show? He's a weak king that can just make laws, and then just, like, people can... Like, if you make a law and people break it, and you don't enforce it, then what does that send the message to your kingdom? Well, anybody can break the law, and you're not that strong of a leader. So he needs to save face. So instead of being a king of integrity, he could have said, this is what the king could have done. The king could have said, yes, I made, yes, I made the edict. But as king, I also have executive power to change the edict. 
and I'm changing the edict because Daniel is a man of integrity, and I'm making an exception for him because he served me faithfully, and as king, I have the sovereign right to do that, and I'm going to do that. I don't have to do it, and I may not do it for other people, but I'm going to do it for Daniel because he's a man of integrity. The king could have done that. He had executive power to make the decree. He could have had executive power to, you know, not make the decree. But he's a coward. So he's like, okay, I'm going to send Daniel to the lion's den. And notice what he says there. Verse 16. May your God who you serve continually deliver you. Hopefully your God can do something to save you. Okay. So number one, we've seen man, Daniel is a man of... In, utmost integrity. Number two, we've seen Daniel as a man of intense prayer. Third thing we're going to see tonight is actually the miraculous rescue of Daniel in the den of the lions. So let's read the rest of this passage. Okay? And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and slept, sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had miraculously Oh, those, kings, those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and they were cast into the den of lions. They their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Okay. There's irony going on here. If you read closely. The king can't sleep. He spends the night in turmoil. He has everything this world has to offer. And those diversions that he, like women, harem, money, all these things that the king had at his disposal, and yet that night he can't sleep. He's anxious. He's guilty. He's tossing and turning in his sleep. He's got a guilty conscience that he sent an innocent man to the lion's den. Now, Daniel, where's Daniel? Daniel has no friends. Everybody's come against him. No friends coming to his rescue. What's he doing in the lion's den? Remember, this is the next morning that King Darius comes. Daniel's sleeping in there 
all alone except for this angel that comes and miraculously saves him. So we see two kingdoms at play here. The kingdom of fear, anxiety, the world, represented by King Darius who couldn't sleep, and the kingdom of peace, righteousness, and God's grace and security in Daniel. And notice how many times Darius calls Daniel the servant of the living God. Now, Darius is convinced that God is powerful because he's seen Daniel be rescued. Have not we seen this before with two other kings? What happened with Nebuchadnezzar? We always wonder with Nebuchadnezzar, is this kind of like he's impressed with God of Daniel? For a while he was, and after he was humiliated and had to eat grass for those seven years, then he came, came to that, that transformation. King Belshazzar, he was kind of, you know, he was wowed by the writing on the wall and how Daniel can interpret it, but he didn't repent. So the question is, okay, is this Darius going to be that same kind of guy? Same kind of king? I mean, he makes a decree there in verse 26. I mean, he, he basically says some things that are very true. He's a living God. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. He delivers and rescues, works signs and wonders. So he acknowledges the sovereignty of the living God as the one who saved Daniel. So ultimately, Daniel saved, delivered, and rescued by the living God. In the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11.33, who through faith stopped the mouths of lions, talking about Daniel. Now, what I want to show you is I want to take a theological detour tonight. Okay, How old is Daniel? Or roughly how old is he? He's in his 80s. Has he started well and has he finished well? Yes. Okay. So Daniel trusting in the Lord to the very end and being willing to be persecuted and being a man of integrity, this is a beautiful portrait of what we call the perseverance of the saints. Daniel finishes well. He doesn't compromise. He stays firm to the end. It's not how you start the race that counts. It's how you finish. So, what is perseverance of the saints? Let me give you a definition. This is from our statement of faith. Those God has accepted in Christ effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Now, the key wording there is totally and finally. If you're a true believer, you won't totally or finally fall away. Now, can true believers sometimes temporarily fall into sin? Yes. Can true believers do things that are stupid? Yes. Can true believers lose their salvation? No. If you walk in disobedience long enough and you're truly one of God's people, he will discipline you back. And so basically what the teaching is this. The teaching of the perseverance of the saints is this. God, by his grace, will work in us to ensure that we endure. I want, I want you to hear those words. God will ensure we endure. I know that those rhyme. Those rhyme. He, God will ensure we endure. Must we endure to the end? Yes. 
Will we endure to the end? Yes. Is it in our power to endure to the end? No. Does God work in us to give us the power to the endure to the end? Yes. When we fail, does God forgive us? Yes. If we fail miserably, will God discipline us sometimes to bring us back? Yes. Can we totally and finally fall away? No. Okay? So let me give you a few verses here that talk about how God will work in us to get us to the end. That's what God's been doing in Daniel's life. God has been working in Daniel's life to preserve him to the end as a man of integrity who started well and ended well. So we've got some verses here. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? What's the key word there? Sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful to sustain you to the end. What does sustain mean? Keep, guide, preserve, work. Till when? The end. Is God going to do it halfway? God gives you half of the grace and it's up to you to finish the rest. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, it says right here, God will sustain you to the end. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely... And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the end, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What will he do? What will he surely do? Keep you blameless until the coming of Christ. Sustain you to the end. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us to ensure that we do make it to the end. And then Jude, there's only one chapter of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now, this is the doxology at the end of the, of the book of Jude. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep you from stumbling. Does that mean stumbling? That means God is able to keep you from stumbling fully and finally away. Not that you won't stumble along the way, but God will make sure that you don't totally and finally fall away. He will keep you in his grasp. So, God promises to sustain us to the end. And notice what Jeremiah 32.40 says. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God will put his fear in our hearts that we won't turn from him. Now, some of our Arminian brothers and sisters would say you don't necessarily lose your salvation but you walk away from your salvation. And here's their argument. If you choose to get in, you can choose to get out. God honors your free will so much that if you want to choose to get in, he's going to let you choose to get out. So if you choose to stop believing and you choose to walk away, God honors your free will and he'll let you do that. That's what they believe. Now, we don't believe that in our church, but that's their argument. Um, we believe the Bible teaches that if you are truly saved, you are truly saved. And it doesn't mean you won't ever sin, but that God will make sure you endure to the end. And we see that here in Daniel. He, he persevered to the end. As an old man, he never compromised. God worked grace in his life to where he finished the race well.
And, and notice what happens there. Look at the very last verse. What's the last verse say? So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He prospered through two other kings. So Daniel lived through four kings. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. He prospered. Daniel prospered. And when it talks about prospering in the Old Testament, that doesn't necessarily mean financially, but it basically means that Daniel continued to be a man that demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. He was a man of integrity. He had no uh, charge brought against him. He still lived a man of utmost integrity, and you assumed he continued his life of prayer the way he had always done. So, Daniel lived through four kings, and he's the last one standing. Kingdoms rise and empires fall, but Daniel perseveres. Now, there's something startling about this narrative that should have caught you a little off guard. And what was that? The violent death of the conspirators and the families. Now, I can understand why they put the conspirators in the lion's den, but they put their families, their wives and children. Now, it's not condoned here. This will come back again on Sunday morning when we talk about judges. Sometimes things are reported in the Bible and they're not condoned. They're just reported. Okay. The Bible doesn't say that's the right thing to happen. This was the Persian. This was not Israelite. This was the Persian system of justice. Okay. This would not have happened in Israel, per se. This is the way the Persians did things. So this was a different way of going about justice. Okay, so Daniel was spared. Now, that's the end of the narrative. Daniel lines in. He's a man of integrity, a man of prayer, and God's safety. Let's go home. You know I'm not going to do that. There's something deeper going on here. Much deeper. This paints a picture of Judgment Day. Now, let's ask some theological questions of this passage of Scripture because there are some things in there that teach us about salvation. Let's ask the question. Why was Daniel saved? Was it because he was a good person? Was God obligated to save Daniel? You will find the answer in verse 22. What does verse 22 tell us? My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, in verse 22, it said he was found blameless before God, but then look at verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So two things here, guys. Dan uh, Daniel trusted, and he was found righteous. Now, let's not get the chicken before the egg. Or the cart before the horse. 
Are you righteous in order to be saved? No. Are you saved when you trust in Jesus? Yes. When you trust in Jesus, you're saved. And then what happens to you? Then you get the righteousness of Christ as part of your salvation. So I'm going to talk about trust and righteousness here for a moment. Because we see a picture of the gospel. Those who plotted against Daniel were guilty. And they were destroyed. Daniel, on the other hand, was found righteous and was saved. So here's the $10 million question for us. How do you be found innocent or not guilty by God? How do you become righteous? Now, is there something within you that gets God's attention? Are you somehow good enough to be counted righteous? Do you have to be perfect and be a person of utmost integrity to earn God's salvation? So maybe God will save you if you have an impeccable character of perfection. Let me just ask you guys a question. Anybody here live up to the standard that the Bible says can earn your salvation? Here's, here's how you can earn your salvation. You've got to be 100% perfect 100% of the time in thought, word, and deed. If you can do that, you can, you can be saved. The problem is what? None of us can do that. And even Adam, who was made upright, chose wrongly and gave into temptation and sin. So nobody can be saved by earning their salvation. Salvation, we say it all the time in Emmanuel, is what? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So, here's the question. How do you get declared innocent and accepted by God so that you won't have to endure his judgment on the last day? Because on the last day, the penalty will be far worse than being thrown into a lion's den. It will be eternal conscious torment in hell. So let's, let's, let's take the story back to Jesus. This imagery of Daniel and the lion's den is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ the Messiah. You may say, well, how is this a picture of Jesus? Okay, I want you to look at some comparisons here. Hang with me, and you'll see it. Daniel was maliciously and falsely accused, though innocent. Would you agree with that? What about Jesus? Jesus was maliciously and falsely accused of innocent. But was Jesus more than innocent? Jesus was perfect. Daniel was innocent in the sense that he had no skeletons in his closet, but he was still a sinner. Jesus was innocent and he was also righteous. He was perfect. Let's think about what happened to Jesus. Did a throng of conspirators come against Jesus and accuse him before the authorities? Matthew 26, 59 through 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Remember the mock trial that Jesus had, the kangaroo court trial? He wasn't even supposed to be tried at night. They did it in the secret of night. And they brought all these false witnesses in to try to speak up against Jesus, and they couldn't find anything wrong with him. And remember what Pilate said three times? I find no fault in him. Even Pilate three times said, this man is innocent. 
So, what did Darius order over the lion's den? What did Darius say? <laughs> Seal the lion's den with a stone. Darius ordered that Daniel's tomb, if you will, be sealed and closed so that no one could open it. What did Pilate order on the tomb of Jesus? That it be sealed and nobody opened it. Matthew 27, 64 through 66. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Do you see the similarities? Daniel was maliciously slandered. Jesus was maliciously slandered. Jesus was put into a tomb and they sealed it shut. Daniel was put into a tomb and they sealed it shut. Okay, now here's where some things get different. Just as Daniel was not torn limb from limb, were any of the bones broken on Jesus when he hung on the cross? Not a bone of his was broken. Okay. That's where the similarities end, sort of, between Daniel and Jesus. There's a considerable difference between Daniel and Jesus, and you, you can probably figure it out. Daniel was delivered from death and saved, right? He was not attacked. He did not die. No broken bones. He was saved. Jesus was not. Jesus was abandoned and forsaken and died alone on the cross bearing the full wrath of God against our sin. Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sectactini, that means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Daniel's life was spared. Jesus' life was not. God did not spare Jesus' life. God spared Daniel's life. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Now, let me ask you a question. Did Daniel come out of the tomb? Yes. So in a sense, what happened? In a sense, Daniel rose again. Not that he died, but he came up out alive and unharmed. That's a miracle of miracles, but even a greater miracle is what? In a much more glorious fashion, Jesus, who experienced the worst kind of death through crucifixion, was laid in the tomb and rose again three days later. He is the risen king. And there's going to be final judgment. All those who have trusted in Jesus will be found righteous. All those who have not trusted in Jesus will be thrown not into the lion's den, but into the lake of fire on that final day. Into the eternal lake of fire. Now, the question becomes, how do you get righteous? Look at verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless 
before him. Okay, how, how are you found blameless before the living God? I've given this analogy many times before. I will draw it. And you have seen this, or maybe you've not seen this, but picture your, or this is God, and God is the judge. And this is the courtroom, and it's also a bank, okay? So it's like a bank account. So this is you on one side of the ledger, and this is Jesus on the other side of the ledger in the bank account. So when God the judge looks down at you and sees your life without Christ, are you found blameless? No, you're found, what's the opposite of blameless? Blameworthy or guilty. Okay, so what's your, what's your balance in your bank account, your spiritual balance? Is it zero or is it negative? Okay, it's negative. And I wish I had, it's negative what? It's negative gazillion dollars. Okay, let's just make up a word. You have negative major debt in your bank account that you could never get out. No matter how many good deeds you do, you're never going to get out of debt. Okay, so this is your spiritual debt. And this spiritual debt makes you guilty, guilty, guilty before a holy God. God the judge looks down upon you and all he can say is guilty, 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 deserving of hell. Okay, so how in the world do you get rid of this negative balance? Because you can't do it on your own. You can't do enough good deeds. Here's the only way. What did Daniel Look at it. Look at verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had what? What's the word? Trusted. 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 Okay. So when you trust or when you believe in Jesus, okay, when you trust and you believe in Jesus, guess what happens? All of that debt goes out of your account and goes to Jesus' account because he bore that sin on the cross. So the moment that you trust and place your faith in Jesus, that sin debt is taken out of your account. It's credited. It's accounted, whatever word you want to use. It's debited, whatever banking term you want to use. It's credited to Jesus. And now you have, what's your balance now? Nope, it's zero. Okay, which is good. You don't want to be in debt, but a zero will help you. Like if you go out and you want to spend money, like, okay, I'm, I'm out of debt, but I don't have any money. I'm zero. Okay, so what do you need? You need a positive balance to still be. God can look down on you and say, okay, you don't have any sin, but there's no positive balance. You're, you're still guilty. Even though you don't have a debt, you don't have anything positive. You're still not, you're still not blameless. You're still not righteous. You're just at zero. Okay, so something has to happen to you from the outside. Same thing. When you trust and believe in Jesus, from Christ comes something into your account. What's credited? What's accounted? What comes into your account? The answer? The perfect righteousness of Jesus. Christ's perfect record. His perfect life. His perfect obedience to the law. His perfect record. Not your record, his record. You can't earn that record. Jesus lived it and earned it for you, but that record comes into your account. Now, are you at zero anymore? No. 
You have a positive balance. Did you contribute to that positive balance? No. Did you earn that positive balance? No. All you did was trust. And now, because your sin's been taken out and Christ's righteousness has been imputed in, God the judge can look down upon you now and he doesn't see you in your debt. He doesn't see you at zero. He sees Jesus. And based upon that, God can make the legal declaration, not guilty forever. You're blameless in my sight. And what's the only thing you did? You trusted. So when you trust in Jesus for salvation, your sins are credited to Christ, his righteousness is credited to you, and you are declared forever not guilty before him. Now, does anybody know the theological term for this? Theological term is not in your notes. It's called justification by faith alone. It's faith alone. Not faith plus works. Not faith that you somehow muster up that you can earn. But this is something that God alone does to you. So, here's the final question for tonight. What does your account balance look like today? Who are you trusting in? Daniel 6.23 says he was saved because he trusted in his God. We are saved the same way, by trusting in Jesus. So here's the question. Will you trust him alone today? Some of you may be for the first time, but even as believers, we need to continually trust Jesus every day for his grace in our lives. So, we got done a little early again. I can't milk these chapters for more than about an hour and ten minutes. I don't know if you guys... So, are there any questions that you guys have? Do you think Darius truly converted um, after seeing that? Or, like Nebuchadnezzar, do you think... Yeah, that that's the question... It was just kind of another, because yeah. he still uses the word his God. Yeah, and that's a good insight. Basically, I have to go to the end here. I don't think there's any evidence that Darius per se, all we can say is that he made that proclamation and we can't look at his heart. But, but it could be one of those things where we've seen a pattern in Daniel where these kings kind of, hey, your God's cool. And they make this saying about God's sovereignty, but were they truly convicted and saved? I don't know about Darius. The only one we can definitively say is, is Nebuchadnezzar because he went through that transformation. He did humble himself. He looked up to the Lord. Um, again, it's, is this conviction without conversion? Is this he's being impressed by God but not really moved internally? I don't know if we can answer the question. I would, my guess would be Darius made a great proclamation about Daniel's God, but I don't know if he truly believed in Daniel's God. Is that fair enough? Mm -hmm. Okay. Good question. Anybody else? Yes, Brent. One of the things going forward is then we need to look at sanctification and glorification because of what was done. Expand upon that. Well, Use an ION words. Justification, sanctification, okay, glorification. Okay, propitiation. Regeneration. Because just of the justification. That, well, because Jesus died on the cross, 
then now we need to work out our salvation with yes. the Right. Not the other way around. It's the I would say the do versus the done is that if we look at the do before the done, right. the do of us versus the done that was by Jesus, right. then we're not saved. Right. So let's think about we talked about perseverance of the saints tonight. Okay. So do you guys mind if we, I, we got some time. Well, I'm going to keep you here. you mind if we turn to one passage of scripture and look at it? Okay, so let's turn to Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30. For those of you out there watching, we're no longer in Daniel, we're in Romans now. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And what I want to show you is, this is called the golden chain of redemption. And I wish we had a marker that was a little bit better than what we've got here. I know Don... Okay, so Romans 8.30. I've got it memorized, but I'll let you guys see if I say it right as I write it up here on the board, okay? Everybody there at Romans 8.30? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Is that what it says? Okay. So these are aspects of our salvation. So think of the big umbrella of salvation. Okay. What this passage of scripture by itself, it doesn't teach you everything about salvation, but it does give you a big summary. It teaches you how God saves sinners. So predestination, without going into a lot of definition about predestination, let's just ask the question, when... Did this happen? What does the Bible say predestination happened? Before time, right? So this, this is before time or in eternity past. God chose us, God predestined us to be conformed to his son, to be adopted as his children, to be saved. God made that choice. Okay, call. When did that happen? At a point in time. God called you to himself. There was that moment where the preaching of the gospel came to you. You understood it. God opened the eyes of your heart. God took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. God regenerated you. God called you. Okay, When God called you, when God changed you, what did you do? It's not in this passage of scripture, but it's assumed. We talked about it earlier. What did you do? You trusted so why did you trust in Jesus? Because you were called. Why were you called? Because you were predestined. You were predestined, you were called, and then you were justified. Justified, as we talked about, is that bank account illustration. Your sins being imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness being imputed to you. That also happened at a point in time. So these two things happen in your at a point in time, like here on earth. Is that rain? Wow. That's usually like what you hear in like May. October rain. That's a Guns N' Roses song. No, it's November rain. <laughs> Sorry. Um, called and justified. These happened at a point in time, okay? So it's different for everybody. Some of you may have been called when you were nine. Some of you may have been called when you were 59, 19, 12. It's that moment when the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of your heart. The Holy Spirit came and gave you the gift of faith. The Holy Spirit regenerated you. You personally believed. You trusted. You were justified. Okay. Glorified. That's when you get your new body. 
That's when Jesus comes back, the resurrection of the dead. This is when you're in heaven. Okay? So this is eternity future. Now let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question. What verb tenses are all these in? It's not a trick question. Past tense, right? Past tense. Okay, we know this happened in the past, right? God did it before the foundation of the world. We know this happened to us at a point in time because God called us. We know this happened at a point in time. Why in the world would Paul say glorified in past tense? Wouldn't it be like future tense? Wouldn't it be those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified will one day be, be glorified. How come he uses the past tense for something that hasn't happened yet? Yeah. In God's mind, it's a done deal. In God's mind, here's the point. If God from eternity past predestines you, God's going to make sure every part of your salvation is fulfilled all the way to your future in heaven. Now let's put perseverance of the saints in there that we talked about tonight. That kind of goes right here. Because that is this process in Brent, what you said, sanctification. Now, these aren't in this passage of Scripture, but other places in the Bible. So this is living out your Christian life, okay? So this is before, this is God predestined you before the foundation of the world. This is your point of salvation, okay? Sanctification is you living it out. Perseverance of the saints is you finishing it out. And glorification is God making sure you get to heaven with your new body. So from first to last, who's in charge of your salvation? God. God chose you. God called you. God predestined you. God's working in you. God will get you to the end. God will glorify you. Now, what's the one thing you do? You trust. Why do you trust? Because you were called. You were predestined. You still make the decision to trust in Christ, but the reason you do that is because God's worked in you, given that to you as a gift. So, to answer your question, Brent, I don't know how much to answer to your question. The point was, you talked about sanctification and perseverance of the saints and glorification what i want to show you guys is in romans 8 30 you've got one verse that teaches us from first to last from eternity past to eternity future and every point in between god is going to sovereignly make sure you are like you can say it this way in three different tenses i have been saved or let's put let's make four four tenses i was planned to be saved i was saved i am being saved and i will be saved God planned my salvation in choosing me. I was saved at the moment that I trusted him. I am being saved right now and God's working in me. And I will be saved finally in the fact that I will receive my inheritance in heaven. So you can say it past, present, future. I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. And it's not because of me. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. That was extra for you guys tonight. Not what I plan to preach on Daniel. But that's good stuff. That's the gospel. Anybody have any other questions? All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll go out and get wet. <laughs> so, Father, thank you for your grace. And it's so neat to see Daniel outliving these many kings and his faithfulness to the end. And, Lord, how you worked in him to be a man of courage, a man of prayer how you did save him. And Lord, we're so thankful that you do that in our lives today. You give us strength, you work in us. And Lord, the only way we can be counted blameless and righteous is by trusting in you. And Jesus, thank you that you took our sin on the cross and you gave us your righteousness and that we are declared forever permanently not guilty before the throne of the Father because of you. Help us to live in the joy of that 
and help us to just follow you and trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.